I don't know about you, but, but growing up, growing up for me, I only had one sibling and he was younger. Okay, so for all of my life, all of my childhood, I had my own bedroom. And in high school and throughout college until I started dating Jenny, I, I didn't have a girlfriend. And so by the time I started dating Jenny, I was quite accustomed to not having to take into consideration anyone else in terms of my decisions or things that I would do. Want to go to a movie? Sure. Want to stay home? Nah, yep. Like, it was all me, 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 me. And then I started dating Jenny. And every Friday night, we had what I called the Friday night fight. And the Friday night fight was because I wanted to go to bed at 9 o'clock because I had to get my little keister up at 4 in the morning to go make breakfast for all the ROTC people. She wanted to go out on a date because it was the only night of the week where neither one of us had any commitments. And so the fight would ensue. Now, I did marry her, and I want to say that after 27 years of thorough training, I am now to the point where I can take into Jenny's, uh, Jenny's wants, desires, dreams, hopes in at least 50% of the decisions that I make. Easily 50. You should be clapping. 50% up to 50%. Now, marriage is a very effective test of, it's a very effective exam of your ability to take into consideration someone else. Uh, many people flunk that exam. Now, some of you know what this is because you have a younger sibling or you have had a younger sibling, right? And I'm sorry, we can't go. Your sister needs a nap. No, 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 no. Wait, hold on. We're going to have to, your brother needs changed or best yet, right? Just give that to him, give that to her. Therefore, they don't understand you have to share, right? And so there's all these things about uh, sibling. And so you would think, you would think that with all this training that we receive in dating and marriage relationships, in, in families, that we would be very, very good at putting other people first, right? You, you would think that would be the case. But, but I wanna say to you that America... I want to say to you that America, and get ready to get Pentecostal. When I deliver this line, you go full Pentecostal on me, okay? America is full of inconsiderate jerks. Sir, sir, sit down. Your kid is not the only one on the team. Ma'am, ma'am, the line, the line goes all the way. See back around the corner, that's the end of the line. We all heard how you're late for work, but we have places to go too. Or, or one of my personal favorites, uh, you open the fridge, you take out the milk. Who put something empty back into the refrigerator. What kind of inconsiderate person would do that? Right? And they're living in your house. Because so many Americans cannot see past the end of their nose, because so many Americans are challenged with being considerate of other people, Americans can't help but see Jesus primarily or exclusively in terms of what Jesus does for them. 
Uh, and so because of that, Americans miss a central part of Jesus' identity and a central part of what Jesus calls us to do. See, in America, we love, we love buddy Jesus. We love Jesus who is our friend, Jesus the healer, Jesus the provider, Jesus the victor. We, we really don't care so much for Good Friday, but Easter, two thumbs up, baby. We are all about Easter. We like that Jesus. We want to follow that Jesus. But that Jesus is a crossless Christianity, and it's a crossless Christ. And so, in case you wonder, here's today's bottom line for today's message. The cross, the cross is awkward. The cross is awkward. Jesus will ask you to give up everything. And his church, the people in this room, they will ask you to put others first. And in 2018, this, this is un-American. This is so un-American. And this is countercultural. So if you brought a Bible along, we're gonna be in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. And in Mark, everything leads to the cross. It's all about the cross in Mark's Gospel. So in Mark chapter eight, which is where we're gonna be today, Jesus has fed 4,000 people. Jesus has warned his disciples about the teaching of the Pharisees. Jesus has healed a man born blind, and, and, uh, and Jesus follows all of that up, and he's with his disciples, and he asks them, hey, what's, what's the word out on the street? Like, who do people say I am? And Peter, Peter gets it right. Peter goes, oh, oh, master, you, you're the Messiah. You're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. And that, that's where we pick things up in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 and following. All right, uh, 31 through 33, and we're gonna go through this a chunk at a time. Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed. But three days later, he would rise from the dead. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples and reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You're seeing things from merely a human point of view, not from God's. So he began telling them in the open, this is new, this is different. This is not just dramatic foreshadowing like they have in Lemony Snicket's uh, a series of unfortunate events where you're following along and you're like, oh, I know this ends badly. They don't know it, but I know it. See, a lot of the gospels, you know where Jesus is going and he'll say these things and you're like, they don't have it figured out. He's going to the cross, they're gonna kill him, right? But here he's saying it out in the open. It's plain, it's obvious, it's clear, and apparently Peter couldn't take it. So Peter is taking his kind of Messiah, what he thinks the Messiah is, and he's projecting that onto Jesus. 
Whoa, 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 Jesus, no, 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 not the cross. See, the way this plays out is you're crowned king, we kick Rome's butt, and I'm in a seat of honor next to you. And everybody's like plotting and everything else. Like, that's how this plays out, Jesus. You're doing it wrong, Jesus, right? Now, first of all, we do the same thing, don't we? Secondly, that's good news because God uses Peter and Peter eventually sees Jesus for who he really is. But Jesus rebukes him. And what is the nickname that Jesus, uh, Jesus gives Peter? What's Peter's new nickname? Satan. Who else in Jesus' life offered him an opportunity to have a crown without the cross? Satan. I, would, I wonder sometimes if later on, after Jesus' death and resurrection, if the other guys, hey, Satan, could you pass the bread? <laughs> like, I sometimes wonder if that played out, okay? So, again, in America, in America, we want Jesus to be, we do what Peter does. The American projection onto Jesus is that Jesus is buddy Jesus. Jesus is our friend. He's our helper. He's our life coach. He's our rescuer. Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> like, we love that Jesus. And it's a Jesus who doesn't make very many demands of us, right? That Jesus is like, hey, could you come to church every once in a while and, and maybe help out of the food pantry or do this or that? It's a minimal ask that Jesus makes of us. And that's kind of how we roll. But it's not the Messiah. In verse 34, Jesus says this, then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, he must, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. So calling the crowds to join his, so everyone hears this and he says this to them. And it's got three parts to it and I wanna unpack this. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. The old, the old translations would say deny yourself. Now we use that phrase denying oneself in American culture and it's usually in the form of a question. Why are you denying yourself? Hun, have this cup of coffee. Why are you denying yourself? Here, have another slice of cake. Like, why would, you, why would anyone do that? That's silly. But that's, that's not what Jesus means by give up your own way. Give up your own way is, um, so when you're three years old, I'm three. When you're three years old, any and every adult is the boss of you. But you know at age three who's not the boss of you, and you know who that is? Your older siblings. And you will say out loud when you're three, you're not the boss of me, right? Give up your own way is saying to yourself and to everyone else and to Jesus, I am not the boss of me. I am not the boss of me. You wanna make a Christian t-shirt that would put a smile on my face? Let's all wear t-shirts one summer that says, I am not the boss of me. That'll get people to ask you questions. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> I sound American. Yes, it is. <laughs> okay, give up your own way. Take up your cross. Now again, we use this expression in America. It's my cross to bear, right? Let, let me spell out some ways. And, and we use cross to mean any kind of hardship or difficulty. 
Oh, my mother-in-law is always changing my plans. It's my cross to bear. Man, I live on five acres and I gotta mow that sucker twice a week in the spring. It takes me seven and a half hours to mow it. Man, living in the country, it's my cross to bear, right? <laughs> right? I'm in the band, I'm a clarinet player and I sit in front of the trombones and they're so loud and they've got spit everywhere. It's my cross to bear, <laughs> right? Cross to bear is not just some kind of hardship. That's not what Jesus meant. And that's not what the people who heard him say this would have understood. See, in Rome, Rome ruled with an iron fist. And Rome, in order to ensure your fealty to Caesar, if you were a certain kind of criminal, or you were a revolutionary, you were crucified. And it is a very, very painful way to die. Like, I would take firing squad over crucifixion. You don't even have to, I don't even need time to think about it. Shoot me. You can even miss several times. Shoot me. Go ahead. Much better. Okay? Uh, just research today, later today, what, how you die being crucified. You, you literally asphyxiate in your own blood. You, you can't pull yourself up anymore to breathe. It's a horrible way. It takes hours, sometimes a day or so. So the way it worked is there was a vertical stake and a horizontal beam. And if you were condemned, you had to carry the horizontal beam to your place of execution. And all along the way, people would ridicule you, mock you, spit on you, beat you, and then you'd have to die an excruciating death. It was Rome's way of saying, you will submit. You will submit. You flout Rome, you flout the law of Rome, you flout Caesar, you will pay. And sometimes they would line roads with people being crucified. On your way into town, you'd be like, oh, this is wigging me out. Right? You know, they did that. And it was Rome's way of saying, at the end of the day, you will bear your neck, you will submit to Rome. Rome will always win. And so when Jesus is saying, take up your cross, He's making a statement about submission. And he's saying to you and me, when you agree to be my follower, you're not the boss of you anymore. I am. I lead. I always win. That's a hard message for us Americans. Woo! Wait a minute, Jesus is going a little too far there. Like, we kind of cringe at that. So the last part of it, take up your cross and follow me. So following Jesus means I'm not the boss of me anymore, and I've taken up my cross. I'm willing to follow Jesus anywhere for any reason. He will lead. And so Jesus follows this up with a series of paradoxes, all right? And I want to wade through these, and this is verse 35 and following. If, if you try to hang to your life, if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you, if you give up your life, for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you'll save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? If anyone's ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy, with the holy angels. So the, the first verse here, uh, if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it, but if you lose it for my sake, you'll find it. Life 
true life, vibrant life is found by giving yourself away. If there's a number one message that young Americans need to hear, it's this message. See, in America, young people are told, follow your dream and become a celebrity and you will live life. No, 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 no. Life is found by taking up responsibility and in service to something that's not yourself. That's where meaning, significance, a sense of satisfaction, all of that's found in that. So he, he says some more things that seem to be contradictory. He poses some questions in verse 36 and following, and these are rhetorical questions. Let me rephrase them in a way that might make a little more sense. What, what would be worth sacrificing? What would be worth giving up to gain eternal life? Everything? <laughs> I'm gonna go with everything for 500, Alex. <laughs> you know, everything, everything, yes. What would it be worth to gain eternal life? Giving up anything and everything. Once you've lost your soul, what could you pay to get it back? Nothing. Once you've lost your soul, what could you pay to get it back? And then in verse 38, there's more things that seem to contradict. He says, if you're ashamed of me and my message, I'll be ashamed of you. If you refuse to identify with me and I'm going to a shameful death on a cross, if you won't follow my way, the way of the cross, I'll be ashamed of you. And in an honor and shame culture, allegiance and loyalty is everything. And he caps it off in the first verse of chapter nine with this. He says, I tell you the truth, some of you standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God arrive in great power. There's been a lot of debate. What does that mean? Is he talking about the transfiguration? Uh, is it Pentecost? Like what's going on? He is cueing us into the fact that the way of the cross is the way that God's power is displayed. Uh, in Mark's gospel, the definition of a Christian is someone who is following Jesus, and Jesus is going to the cross. In light of this, in, in light of what we see in scripture, I wanna ask a question. If someone asked you what it meant to follow Jesus, what would you tell them? And would you mention the cross? Would you still follow Jesus if it meant losing your closest friends? Would you still follow Jesus if it meant alienation from your family? Would you still follow Jesus if it meant the loss of your reputation? Would you still follow Jesus if it meant losing your job? Would you still follow Jesus if it meant losing your life? These are, these are questions that are uncomfortable, that I find uncomfortable. So, so how do we live this out? What does this look like a little bit? Well, let me offer a few mm, small, small things, really, small things. First of all, I think we followers of the way, followers of Jesus who, who's, who went to the cross, we should eliminate the phrase, I shouldn't have to. That, that shouldn't be a phrase that comes across our lips. I shouldn't have to deal with. I shouldn't have to clean. I shouldn't have to. Uh, that's the language America trains us. It's a language of rights and privileges. I've got a right to this. I've got a right to that. Uh, one of my uh, friends at Wheaton hacked off the entire dorm. 
One day on his door to his room, he put your rights as an American, and it was like a long list, and then he had your rights as a Christian, and it was a blank piece of paper. Oh man, he made everyone on the dorm mad at him, like, oh, Drew Stevenson, okay. But it, it was accurate, <laughs> like, theologically, we couldn't argue with it, oh, Drew, okay. For, for some of us, some of us just need to get off social media. Social media is me, 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 like me, affirm me, 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 me. Like social media is the opposite of the way of the cross. And when we get on there, we're so upset. We get so mad and so angry. And so get off. Or when you're on, like be considerate of others, right? As followers of Jesus, like we should be thinking of others. And then lastly, uh, practice hospitality. Uh, we Americans have made our homes fortresses and caves. We should have open hearts and open homes. I know it's messy, I know this, I know a lot of things about it. And then the second part of it is, when you invite, we've talked about this a few weeks ago, don't invite someone on Facebook. You wanna know why? Because they're just gonna click the interested button. <laughs> call them, call them, I know. It's gonna be awkward, ding, yes it is. Embrace the awkwardness, but invite. I, I can't preach on Mark 8 without mentioning this man right here, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and a theologian uh, in what was Nazi Germany. And, and by the way, if you think American churches uh, haven't just, uh, uh, America, one of the clearest symbols that American churches have embraced a crossless Christianity is the fact that you can go in so many of them, right, and never see a what? A cross. What are we ashamed of the cross for? And I know that's practical reasons and legitimate reasons, but like everything communicates. So, so Bonhoeffer was this theologian and pastor, and in 1931, he came to New York City and he studied at Union Theological Seminary under Reinhold Niebuhr. He studied under Reinhold Niebuhr. And so when he was here, uh, this is in New York City, do you know what church he chose to be his church, his church family? Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, a black church, right? A guy from pre-Nazi Germany came to America and goes, America, you're doing it wrong, <laughs> okay? And, and so he goes back to Germany, and in 1933, they name Adolf Hitler Chancellor. Two days later, Bonhoeffer goes on the radio all over Germany, and he delivers a sermon where he basically warns his fellow German citizens of the cult of das Führer. Beware of the cult of the Führer. Don't give in to it. And the radio broadcast, by the way, is cut short. They didn't listen to him because you know what they did a few months later in September of 1933? The National German Church passed a resolution requiring the removal of any pastor or church leader of Jewish descent. So you, here you are, you're a Christian. Oh, you, your family's Jewish, out. 
Literally, they did that, 1933. Well, he spends a couple of years in London, and then he returns to Union Theological Seminary in 1939, and the professors there know what's coming in Europe, and they beg him to stay. They say, please stay. It's gonna be dangerous in Germany. It's gonna be dangerous in Europe. We'll let you teach. We'll give you anything you want. Just stay. And he says, I can't. I can't do that. I can't, I can't and won't be able to lead in the wake of what's gonna hit Europe if I'm not there during the hardest part of it. And so he goes back. Well, the Nazis don't like him. <laughs> and so for three years, between 1940 and 1943, he forms the Confessing Church. And you know what the, the number one tenet of the Confessing Church is? Christ is head of the church, not the Fuhrer. And in a banner form, it has a swastika with a giant X through it. Imagine going to some congregations in the United States today and simply proclaiming, Christ is the head of the church, not the president, and putting a big X on the American flag, right? You'd get some pushback. You'd get some pushback. And so he got pushback. He, he had to conduct, uh, the other thing he did uh, was he called this seminary on the run, because he was on the run. <laughs> and so he would go throughout and he would start little pockets of community and try and teach them what it meant to follow Jesus. Well, he, he was arrested. They caught up with him. The Gestapo caught up with him on April 5th, 1943, and he was executed. They hung him. He was hanged on April 9th, 1945, just two weeks before the 90th and 97th divisions of the U.S. Army liberated the prison camp at Tegel. If you've never read The Cost of Discipleship, you should read that book this year. I would easily list it in the top 10 books the church has produced over the past 2,000 years. So in addition to reading the Bible, I put it in that list, that it took 2,000 years and it would make the top 10. So this man, this is what he says about Mark chapter eight. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time, death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. Jesus' summons to the rich young man was calling him to die because only the man who is dead to his own will can follow. Christ. Jesus calls us to follow him and his way is the way of the cross. And he wants us to get to a point where we say, I am not the boss of me.